There are things known and there are things unknown, said Aldous Huxley, and in between are the doors of perception. Well, Lord knows I'm always looking to know more and there are probably things I'd like to unknow and unlocking doors along the way is what I'm all about because I'm Rob Mike Foyer and this is The Jewish Story. Season 4, Interlude, Interview with Yossi Klein Halevi. Okay, so I know everybody is as excited as I am to continue the story of the land and the state rolling out of last episode and don't be afraid. I'm going to do it. I'm working on something really exciting right now. I'm very charged on the story of the return to Gush Etzion, right? The Etzion block, if you're familiar. But that's going to lie a little bit in the future. Because right now, really in response to your feedback about the interviews that I've done so far this season, and before I even get into it, please, the feedback is critical, people. RobMikeFoyer at gmail.com. RobMikeFoyer on Facebook. You can find me. RobMike.com. You can even find me on the Jewish Story website. Wherever you look, I'm happy to hear what it is you think I ought to be doing. So do it. So as I said, in response to your feedback, and of course, not solely your feedback, because really it's my interest to speak with the guests I have today, um, because I'm pretty excited. I'm excited for the opportunity to speak with Yossi Klein-Halevi. He's a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute, a non-resident fellow of the Trends Think Tank in Abu Dhabi, and of course, author, op-ed writer extraordinaire, and I believe father as well, yes? Thank God. Three kids. Yeah. Well, and that is perhaps the most precious task. You know, so what I would like to do is give my readers an opportunity to sort of um, hear your perspective on the conversation we're already having. I feel you in a little bit before the show, but I'll just uh, kind of remind you, and I've spent the first five episodes of season four exploring the impact of the 1967 Six-Day War on Israel and on American Jewry. And I feel that for a number of reasons, you're going to have not only a unique insight, but on a number of the things we've touched on. So with your permission, I'm gonna dive right in. Sure. Right. So. So I started off in America. One of the episodes I did was on the early Soviet Jewry movement. Um, something I know that you were involved in and I'm excited to hear a little bit about. And in particular, I used it as an opportunity to introduce a very powerful and in the minds of many problematic personality at that point in Jewish history was Rav Meir Kahana. And for folks that don't know, your first, it was, I believe your first book, yes? Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist? Yep, yep. A fantastic book, something that, uh, Actually, I resonated much, if not with the particulars, having grown up at a different time in a different place, but at least um, with a certain element of the arc of personal development really spoke to me. Um, and it's a book about your journey from the JDL, uh, from involvement in that Soviet, Soviet jury union, uh, sorry, Soviet jury movement to, let's just say, a very different place. So opening question, I would love it if you could share with me and with everybody listening, um, a memory, a thought, a feeling from the time from the late 60s, 1968, you know, 69, which for you really captures Rav Kahana? <laughs> well, uh, it's good to be with you, Rav Mike, and uh, thank <laughs> you for, uh, for, the, for the podium. I, um, you know, I haven't thought about Mayor Kahana for a very long time. I certainly don't think of him uh, as Rav Kahana, I don't think Fair of enough. him with that um, weight of tradition. And I, I see him as a rebel against the tradition. I see him as a fundamentally, a, a fundamentalist, but but an anti-traditionalist fundamentalist in a very 
paradoxical kind you, of way. Can you explain that a little bit more? Anti-traditional yeah. fundamentalist. Yeah, I think that uh, Mayor Kahana, who claimed to be speaking from the depths and authenticity of, of Torah, uh, actually uh, was a radical Jewish theologian. Mm. And uh, is one of the few people in our generation uh, who created his own theology. I think it was a poisonous theology. I think it was a theology that was really based on hatred and revenge and violence. Mm -hmm. uh, but what he did was, and this was quite a, an original move, he extracted all of those elements within our 4,000 year tradition. And you know, in the corpus of uh, Jewish tradition, you can find a lot. Almost anything. <laughs> you can build a case for really, as you'd say, almost anything. And so he, he brought together elements of vengeance against the Gentiles for persecuting us, uh, fantasies, messianic apocalyptic fantasies uh, of, uh, of vengeance, uh, a, a, not just a legitimization of violence, but, but a glorification of violence. Mm. And you really, I think you have to work especially hard in the Jewish tradition to find that, to find glorification of violence. But he did, he, he you know, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to the credit of his very fertile and uh, to my mind distorted, distorted worldview, he really was able to put together a coherent theology. And I, I see that theology as, um, a, an, an authentic response to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And by authentic, I don't mean that, uh, that it's a good theology. Again, no, it doesn't mean it. I understand what you meant. I think it was a genuine... Poisonous, a poisonous theology. In the same way that Satmar is a genuine the Jewish theology. Certainly. The Satmar Rebbe based his anti-Zionism on texts. Yep. And uh, you, can, you, you can certainly interpret our text in many directions. You know, when we say that the Torah has 70 faces, well, Mayor Kahana found the 71st. <laughs> and, um, and, and so what he did was lay the groundwork theologically for some of the worst atrocities that have been done in the name of Torah yeah. uh, in our in, in our generation. And I'm thinking of the Goldstein massacre sure. in Hebron in 1994, when Dr. Baruch Goldstein, who was one of Kahana's most, most loyal followers, and Kahana had special, a special love for Dr. Baruch, uh, when he went into the uh, tomb of the life. patriarchs and matriarchs and opened fire on a group of Muslims in prayer and killed 29 worshipers. Uh, and of course, saw that as an act of sanctifying God's name because mm -hmm. he was coming directly out of the tradition of, of God's theology. In my mind, it was one of the monumental examples of desecrating the name of God. So, so there's something very powerful in, in how you're presenting this. And uh, despite the amount of research I've done, that frame, I think, eluded me. And I really appreciate the presentation that his power was in the radical nature of the theology that he proposed. And, you know, my Rebbe always said to me that the Torah is written in such a way that it teaches you about yourself. 
which is another way of saying what we were saying is that you look, you're going to find, and a lot of what you'll find you already had. You just who was have. your who was your rebbe? Uh, my rebbe is uh, Rav Daniel Cohn. Um, uh, he's the he's the uh, uh, sure. of Badai sure. and is a, a he's terrific, wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, and so what I'm wondering in that light, um, <clears throat> again, I'm not asking you to, to psychoanalyze, but from your experience, because you, you had to some degree at least a direct relationship with with uh, Americana, yes, yes. So yeah, I did. Um, what was the source of the attraction and the the power and the challenge he was able to pose at a at a time when there were many other voices attempting to do so? Well, I I gravitated to Kahana before he became uh, atheology, before he became mm-hmm. Kahanism, uh-huh. and this was uh, in the late nineteen sixties. I was. 16, 17, mm-hmm. and already very active in the Soviet Jewry movement. I joined the movement uh, in 1965 when I was 12. I was a precocious activist, and uh, I was part of what was called the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. Sure. Uh, which Hopefully was, my listeners know exactly what you're talking about. So that was really the, the like, we launched the Soviet Jewry protest movement. We spoke Which a bit about Yaakov Birnbaum and yeah. Yes. So so Yaakov and Glenn Richter, they, they were the founders, the soul of the Soviet Jewry movement. And I was uh, one of their young disciples. And Kahana came along in the late 60s and said, we're doing this all wrong. We need to get into, into the news. We need to get into the front pages. And the way you do that is through Vine. Mm. Now, bear in mind that this is the late 60s. Yeah. It's, if you've seen um, Chicago 7 film that's on Netflix now. It's on my list. It's, uh, on my list. it's great. It's actually a great film. Although I heard they scrubbed uh, Abby Hoffman's Yiddish out of it. Well, they also missed one of the, 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 great, the greatest Jew, American Jewish moments, which is when Abby Hoffman turns to Judge Hoffman, two Shand- Jews named Shand- Hoffman, Shand- and said, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, so this, is, you know, this is the atmosphere. It's the late 60s. Uh, violence, uh, quote uh, Jerry Rubin, violence is as American as apple pie. Uh, and uh, I hope people and, are listening to that now when the fear is that what's happening in America is so different. You know, yeah. it's not a good thing, don't get me wrong, but it's it's not so exceptional. Yeah, and uh, that's right. And uh, and the the sense of uh, of of this is now our moment we mm-hmm. are going to the jdl the jewish defense league is our expression of the 60s but bear in mind as well that that there's a convergence of influences we are the generation that's just beginning to deal with the shoah yep. we're the first generation to come of age uh, for whom shoah is somewhere between a contemporary lived experience my father was a survivor i grew up in a survivor home the Shoah was not abstract to me. It was, it was a lived experience. And, and yet it's also becoming history, becoming sure. memory. It's the and, beginnings and of memory. And we, it's the beginnings of memory. And so we're struggling with, with what do we do with this thing? And the Six-Day War has just happened, speaking of which. <laughs> you know? And so we are, uh, there's a great Hebrew word, mutzah. We are we are emotionally flooded. <laughs> yeah, this is the, I can't even think of a you translation know, for that. Yet. You know, we're, we're, we are 
over overwhelmed by by input, historical mm-hmm. input mm-hmm. from every direction, from the Jewish story, the Israeli story, uh, the American story. Sure. And Mayor Kahana comes along and puts it all together. Ah. And uh, and that was his his genius in the late 60s. He tells us kids in Brooklyn that uh, we need to take our our role in the front line of responding to the Holocaust. And when when he came up with the slogan, never again, uh, he didn't mean never again will there be a Holocaust. Oh, I know. He made that very clear. (laughs) He he said, you know, how how do we know if there's going to be another Holocaust or not? Never again will Jews not fight back. Never again will American Jews be passive while other Jews overseas are threatened with, with annihilation. That's, so never again referred to us. It referred to Jewish behavior. It didn't refer to the non-Jews at all. Kind of couldn't have cared less about, about the non-Jews. Go ahead and try. <laughs> try another Holocaust. This time we're ready. So I hear, And that was, that was the mentality. That was the approach. So that's very helpful. I hear two things in here, and correct me if I'm wrong. One was the ability to take this sort of overwhelming, complex and still unformed situation and crystallize it into what was perhaps a dangerously simple equation, but to... to yes, yeah. and, simplistic. And, yeah, and, and to plug that into a call, for, call to action. Yeah. We can, we can yeah. be part yeah. of sure. the historic sure. process, not just an observation. Yes. Jewish theology yes. at its best because there's a behavior which it dictates. Yes, and, and Kahana was, you know, Kahana was certainly right that the Soviet Jewry movement was the moment when American Jewry came of age. That's it right. was the it was the maturation process, certainly for me personally, but I think generationally, uh, it 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 brought us uh, out of an old American Jewish mindset. Uh, in which you were expected to defend other people. You could fight for, for civil rights. You could fight f- against the war in Vietnam. But right. when it came to Jewish causes, you had to keep a low profile. Fantastic. And so, and so we changed the psyche of the American Jewish community. And I see the emergence of APAC uh, as having really been, in some sense, uh, an organic outgrowth of the Soviet Jewry experience, and uh, and I think that if you were to uh, to to poll APAC activists and leaders, uh, certainly of my generation, you will see overwhelmingly uh, oh. that their 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 baptism, so to speak, in Jewish politics was the Soviet Jewry movement. Yeah, I think that you are unquestionably correct about that. Amazing, so. Rokhana is going to appear again in the thread of our story once he moves to Israel in 1971 and begins to stir the pot in even deeper and darker ways, I would say, here. Um, And and so with your permission, I want to turn to um, another topic, because I have to tell you, there was like an embarrassment of riches when I thought about what what I really want to speak to you about. But um, I want to say that uh, your book, Like Dreamers, is without question one of the better books I've read. Now, I'm a reader. I don't say that lightly, but um, I just enjoyed it on so many levels. I'm so glad. The the narrative, the imagery, the richness of the historical record that you're sort of representing. Um, And I want to actually come to a question specifically on Jerusalem in a moment, because, of course, Jerusalem plays a 
powerful role in the whole saga of what was 1967. But first, I actually want to ask you about the multivocality of the book. So if people haven't read it that are listening, Like Dreamers tells the story of a group of um, young paratroopers who are part of reuniting Jerusalem in 1967. And you follow their lives sort of where they head from that seminal moment. And along the way, explore the various sort of ways in which such a biblical scale event was embodied, engaged, fought over and thought of in Israeli society. And what I found so particularly engaging and powerful is that you chose to do it through parallel and to a certain degree interwoven narratives. And the reason it speaks to me is because multivocality is something I really strive for in my own way in the Jewish story. I'm trying to integrate the traditional and the critical voices. I'm bringing together intellectual, spiritual, and political threads. And I'm trying to learn to speak a language that, um, you know, sort of a, a believer in God and someone for whom God is a character in a cultural drama are able to find their sense of place within it. So just first, can you say a word about why you chose that mode, this sort of multivocal mode to tell the story of such an event? I wouldn't have been able to answer that question when I started the book. It was, Fair. It was an intuition. Uh, the book took a very long time to, to write. It took me 11, <laughs> 11, 11 years wow. of more or less full-time work. And, well, you succeeded. And, <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. And one of the reasons why it took so long is that I didn't have a voice for a very long time. The book didn't have a voice. It was only a cacophony of competing voices. In this. Mm-hmm. The left winger, the further left winger, the right winger, the further left right winger. Right. And I said, what's the voice? And one morning it was, it was I'd say literally this way. Uh, I, I woke up and I suddenly realized that's the voice of the book. The voice of the book is the soul of Israel arguing with itself. Mm. And then I realized something else. That is actually my Israeli voice. Uh, because I moved to Israel in the summer of 1982, the beginning of the first Lebanon war. And not an easy time. Uh, that was the moment when the left-right schism really emerged full force. That yes. summer. Because that was the first war, thank God the only war, that not only failed to unite us, but the war itself was tearing us apart. And so I landed in the middle of the worst moment in, in the Israeli schism uh, until the Rabin assassinated. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and if you're a new immigrant and you're landing in a country that's tearing itself apart, it's really at the very least two Israels, probably more. Sure. Uh, what do you do? Uh, you, have two, you have two options. One option is to join a camp this is going to be my Israel. And, and many of my friends who made Aliyah in the 80s uh, did that. They either became part of settler, uh, religious, right-wing Israel, or they became part of Tel Aviv, secular, left-wing Israel. You find your tribe. You find your tribe. And I felt I didn't move to Israel to join a tribe. I moved to Israel to join Am Yisrael in all of its glorious messiness. <laughs> and, and really, and I just wanted to open myself up to the whole experience. And so I started to listen and to try to learn and absorb. What are these guys saying on the right? 
what are these guys saying on the left? What are they really saying? What's really inspiring and, and frightening them? And I, I took a subscription to two magazines, became devoted, a devoted reader of Nikuda, which was the, uh, the magazine of, of the Yesha Council. Sure. The voice of the Gush Emunim was more or less defunct by that point, but it was their voice nonetheless. It was, it was the voice of, of, of very wide spectrum, but still sure. of the settlement movement. And the second magazine that I took a subscription to was called Kotarat Rashid, which was edited by Nahum Barnea. Nahum Barnea, of course, is Israel's preeminent columnist for Yediot Achronot. And it was quite a left-wing magazine. And I would try to filter the same events through Nikuda and through Kotarat Rashid. And that was my training, I, I realize now, that was my literary training for like dreamers. So now, we're going to come to, I have to ask though, because it's so relevant right now, America's tearing itself apart. We're dancing on the edge here. I'm not want to cast uh, aspersions at anybody else. Do you think it was a, uh, a you think it's just something within you that caused you to respond mm-hmm. that way? Was there something in your education or something in your life experience? I think it's important. Uh, something was, yeah, you can offer to people. The sense of Klal Yisrael of being responsible for the totality of the Jewish people refusing to plant my flag in a particular tribe mm-hmm. uh, comes from, well, maybe it's because I'm a lady. Huh? <laughs> and and yeah. our our job is to serve the whole Jewish people. Beautiful. I think that, uh, and, and, you know, I never thought of it quite that way. I took the name Halevi. It wasn't my, my given name. Uh-huh. It's the name that I called up to, to the Torah, of course. Sure. It was given, Yosef, but not, not by your parents. Yosef ben Asher, Halevi. So, you yeah. know, I just took that name. But um, I think that, that, so that's, I wonder, that's, that's, that's. Is it? Okay. Now, but the Soviet Jewry movement was grounded in, 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 a, um, in a trans-Jewish experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yaakov Birnbaum, when he, when he conceived of, of the student struggle for Soviet Jewry, uh, went to two institutions seeking recruits before he even founded the organization. He knocked on dormitory doors at Yeshiva University, mm-hmm. and he knocked on dormitory doors. They still had a dormitory then, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the conservative. Right. And he went back and forth between YU and JTS, and that became the nucleus of Triple SJ. Mm-hmm. And so built into the Soviet Jewry movement is this sense of, of commitment to the totality of the Jewish people. The way in which you save Soviet Jewry is by saving American Jewry, by by cohe- by by cohering American Jewry, and and, uh, and so that was my training, that was my 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 upbringing, and the other teacher that I had this was my father. Mm-hmm. My father's takeaway from the Shoah was that uh, when we're united, uh, we are we are indestructible and when we're divided as we were in Europe sure. uh, before before the Shoah uh, we are vulnerable mm. and uh, my father's main Torah was Jewish unity 
So, so it, it's not so surprising. And so then the multivocality of, uh, of like dreamers, if I understand you correctly, first of all, you pointed out it was not where you began. That where you began sounds like is a, a process of almost sinun, like a sorting of all these voices that you'd absorbed <clears throat> and, it, yes. and not even trying to give them coherence. Right. Um, and then at a certain point realizing actually cacophony is a constructive force if there's something that can hold it, right? That, that if, that's, if a great, a klal, that's a great way, a great way to put it. Right? If, yeah. if there's a klal Yisrael, then somehow all these voices specifically in their discord are adding something. And, and so it becomes, on a sense, if I understand you correctly, the only way one could tell the story of something as big as Jerusalem, because to tell it through one <laughs> voice or the other, or to attempt to blend them into some harmony would be a false presentation. Yes, I'll give you another example of my it's, father my father's uh, approach to Jewish unity. Uh, when I was growing up, we davened mostly in a shtibel, a little Hasidic synagogue sure. that was uh, from the region that he came from in Hungary, sure. Transylvania. Oh, wait. And, You're on the Hungarian side of Transylvania? Yes. Oh, we could, oh, I was on the Romanian side, so I don't know that we're allowed to have this conversation. <laughs> well, well, the truth is, the truth is it was Romania, but the Jews it didn't recognize it. Yeah. Depends on the year. That's yeah. Right. Is your family from Transylvania? Lansman, yeah, my, my uh, father's family is from, um, if I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but Kreshenev, which is outside of Sigit. Ah, okay, right. That's the area. My father yeah. was from Nodkaroy. My mother was from Nodbanya, which is big, Transylvanians. Big, the big city. Transylvanians. <laughs> and, okay, uh, you, so this, the other piece you were going to give, we're going to play Jewish geography another time, huh? Okay, <laughs> that's right. So, so we we davened in the Neobatler, which is another town from 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 there, <clears throat> and um, every and every so often, usually uh, on Rosh Chodesh, uh, we my father would would not go to the Shtibel, and instead we would daven Temple Emanuel, mm. which was the big conservative synagogue on Fourteenth Avenue in Borough Park. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like semi-scandalous that there was a conservative synagogue in Borough Park, you know. And, and my father went there because he loved the cantor, Novit Kusevitsky, who, uh, who davened there on Rosh Chodesh. And he always made sure, you know, we would sit in a back pew to be a little bit separate so we wouldn't be in the seating. But I don't know of anyone else among my friends for sure who would go back and forth between Temple Emmanuel and the Neobach. That is a very rare <clears> sense. And, and what he was telling me implicitly was, I want you to feel comfortable among all kinds of Jews. That's nice and if Jews, if Jews are, are coming together after the Holocaust, praise God, don't look at the fine print. Don't think, ah, well, they're not doing it in the way that I think they should be doing it. Yeah. If they're coming together to praise God, that's a miracle. That's, yeah. that's something that we celebrate. And that became, for me, the, the foundation of my own Jewish pluralism, which is a pluralism that's not based on Jeffersonian principles. Mm -hmm. uh, it's based on the Shoah. It's based on the Soviet Jewry movement. based on, on my reading of Shivim Panim La Torah, 70 phase Torah. It's an organic product of, sounds like your life experience and the inheritance you have from 
your yep. forefathers. Also an organic product of, a, of the Torah's perspective. So if there's a Klal Yisrael, then all the pieces are part of it. Yeah. Perforce. Yes. Beautiful. So, so thank you. That's a very powerful answer. And, and as a follow-up, since the book is like Dreamers and about Jerusalem, and so I, I feel some sense of due diligence to my listeners who are interested in the time period, can you tell me what you think after having done such an enormous amount of research, by the way, I can't, like, that's one of the things I had your book open in front of me while I was writing the current episode. So if you get a chance to listen, you'll hear your voice. Um, the, what do you think it is that makes Jerusalem so attractive to dreamers? I mean, there's a Jerusalem syndrome people come in. What is it about Jerusalem that attracts dreamers? Yeah, I think that, um... I think all Jews or most Jews, uh, Jewish version of the Jerusalem syndrome. <laughs> One way or another. I mean, I'm here. I think we're, uh, we are overwhelmed in Jerusalem. And we're overwhelmed, certainly, by the fact that we're back. Mm. And, uh, and that uh, this is our, you know, I, 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 I I have I've lived in Jerusalem now for almost forty years. Wow, and I um, I can't say that I have completely gotten used to it. Of course, on some level, it's my daily life, and I complain about traffic and and Don't we all? you know the whole thing. <laughs> and at the same time, I I have never recovered, and I hope I never do recover from that realization that I'm a time traveler. You know, I'm I'm a visitor from the Jewish future, and uh, and I, I I feel that way, and so uh, look, you know, I was also in Jerusalem in the summer of 1967. I was wow. 14. I was wow. 14 years old, and the war ended, and my father said, "That's it. We're going." Really? And we got on a plane two or three weeks after the end of the war. <clears throat> and uh, I'm in Jerusalem. Wow. And that was the happy ever after of Jewish history. Yeah. 67. Mamash. <laughs> it, was o- it was over. It ended. Jewish history ended and we won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and there was very serious messianic anticipation that summer. There were all these rumors. There, was these, there, there were stories about a Jerusalem shoemaker who had had a vision about Mashiach. <laughs> It was, and there were these stories that were circulating about about an old Jew who was leading the paratroopers through the alleys as they were fighting. Yeah. All these legends, and I could tell you what the actual, real events were that the legends were based on, because they're actually real events that happened. Uh, that unfortunately, not about the Mashiach, but uh, but are quite. Yeah. <laughs> quite extraordinary stories. And, uh, and so it was the most remarkable moment. Now, again, bear in mind that um, it's 1967, it's 22 years after the end of the Shoah. Sure. Think of where we were 22 years ago. Right. It's not that far away. No. no, no, no. In the easy memory of most people alive. Yes, yes. And, and, 22 years before the Six-Day War, Auschwitz had just ended. And, uh, and so this radical dissonance and really the sense of moving from apocalypse 
through redemption, with, and, and then to complicate it even more, you've got the transition from May 1967 to June 67. Sure. May 1967, and the weeks before the Six-Day War, the whole of the Jewish people is living in fear that, God forbid, another Holocaust is about to happen. The Arab armies are going to overrun Israel. And the, the euphoria that we feel in June 67 is, first of all, the sense of overwhelming relief that the Shoah had been preempted, second Shoah. And the, there was this emotional trajectory of moving from, from dread, apocalyptic dread, to relief, to, to, to joy, to, to euphoria. To messianic to, fervor. <laughs> to awe. And then, and, you know, when you see the paratroopers standing at the wall, the sense of awe. And then messianic fervor. Yeah. That's the, the, the trajectory. So there's something really strong I heard in the two pieces. You said it sort of separately, but one was this sense of time. Like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a visitor from the Jewish future. That There's something about Jerusalem that almost collapses past, present, and future. And that's a dreamlike quality in of itself, right? You know, when Absolutely. we're a dream... And so, so therefore, on some level, and, and you think about even how Jerusalem represents for, for our Christian brothers and sisters out there, and now the Muslim world, I feel like, is changing perhaps its ability to relate to Jerusalem outside of the immediacy of conflict. And there's, there's some offer that Jerusalem makes where you can step outside the linear nature of time, and which is, of course, the ultimate dreamlike quality. The other one, as you're speaking about, is, is the very deeply, the visceral emotional trajectory. What I've been thinking of is um, psycho-emotional whiplash almost it's, it's in, the, in the sense, not just, I mean, and twofold from the Shoah to 67 and then the, the immediacy of the war itself, something we spent a lot of time speaking about. And of course that transition is, is also dreamlike because it goes from one state to another right. with almost no sense of, of gradation. So that excellent, excellent answer. So yeah, there's this real sense of the simultaneity yeah. of time. You live in multiple eras uh, and you go in and out yes. of these experiences. I also, I, mean, I, I also think that, that the power of Jerusalem is, um, is that it is the most religiously cosmopolitan in the world. You have, uh, you have everybody and everything here. Uh, we don't have much of a... Even amongst a, the Jews. Uh, um, amongst the Jews, among, <laughs> among the Christians, uh, you have you have of course the strong Muslim presence. Have, we're 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 missing a uh, a real Eastern presence here. Yeah, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, in many ways, my experience is that um, I I love to think of the Torah as, Torah as a story that everyone can tell. Um, and I had a student challenge me on it once, very beautifully, and she said, "Well, what about?" sort of the whole East, which doesn't have the personal God conception and our narrative structures basically don't really match the way in which to be grossly over generalizing that the Eastern world looks at the relationship of the, the divine to the human. And the only answer I could give is that when we actually are able to speak it, then we'll just sit and meditate together. I mean, it doesn't have to, it's not that there is a, a space where the words that make up our narratives do become superfluous and there's what to learn there. So it's a it's a beautiful good way um, to put it. Yeah, a beautiful yeah. picture you're painting there. So on that note, actually, uh, to some degree, when, you know, when I looked on your website, um, I noted that uh, you currently co-direct the Shalom Hartman Institute, where you are a senior fellow. 
their Muslim leadership initiative. And it's something I'm actually curious to hear about in its particulars. But first, um, just a little context from the last episode for, for, for the listeners and so you know where the question's coming from. When I was speaking about the impact of 1967 on the political consciousness of the Arab populace that Israel conquered, right? And I say that in such an abstract because what I found in my research is some saw themselves as little Jordanians. Some saw an incredible opportunity to finally sort of coalesce as Palestinians. Others thought, wow, you know, there's this category called Arab Israelis. Maybe like, well, that door will open for us. And others, frankly, like most people were just trying to survive and make a living, you know? Um, so the key is that the possibilities were wide open. And of course, life doesn't always stay that way. But um, I was also thinking about in that light, your latest book, which is uh, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which um, I admit I have not yet read it, but you subtitled it A New Conversation. Oh, my, I would say that the operative word there is yet. That's why I chose it. No, I, <laughs> no it is on my list. Trust me. Listen, a determined reader gets to his goals, but uh, he also understands his paces. And thank well, God I, let, I got a lot to read. So let me recommend to you, if you do read it, read uh -huh. the, at the paperback edition. Yeah, Because it has, it has an epilogue. Uh, of 50 pages of Palestinian responses. Oh, excellent. Book. That's a good tip for me and for anyone else so listening. That, I mean, make, I will remember makes, by the end to make sure more, we know how to get it. Makes it more interesting. Oh, I for think. sure. So that's actually quite to the point because what interested me when I was looking at it on your website is the, is the word new, a new conversation about narratives and peace because you know, the, the Jewish story is engaged with history. Um, nonetheless, for me personally, what was or even speculating about what might have been is a far less interest than what could be. And you've clearly taken an activist role on uh, stance on Muslim-Jewish relations personally. Um, and right now we're all witnesses to this potential for regional change embodied in the Abraham Accords. You said you're part of this um, uh, think tank based in Abu Dhabi right now. Um, it, frankly, it's an amazing as, thing. Who, who could have imagined such a thing? As I'm saying, right two, now the two White House is- ago, Two waiting. months ago, if you would have told me I was going to be a fellow in a think tank in Abu Dhabi. You, know? you would have laughed. <laughs> and yet, like I said, the, the White House right now is literally still up for grabs. Everything's on the table. It feels like in many ways, everything's yeah. on the table. And though that is of course nerve wracking for everyone, no matter what stance they take, um, nonetheless, it's a tremendous sense of possibility. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna have the chutzpah to ask you, what's going to be in, in Muslim Jewish relations? Or rather more specifically, what do you dream of seeing in this region? And what do you think will actually happen? What I think will actually happen is that we're probably heading toward a major showdown uh, with the Shiite uh, parts of the region, uh, Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, which is part of that alliance, the Alawite part of Syria, which is closer to the Shiites. Uh, Hamas, which is not Shia, but is um, is really that part of the Muslim Brotherhood that has aligned itself with Iran to, sure. to some extent. I, I, I think that one way or another that showdown is unavoidable. Uh, um, I, I think that Iran has declared war on our existence. And even as much of the Arab world is winding down its war against Israel's legitimacy. This is an extraordinary moment. Yeah. Where, uh, there are some who, who have characterized this moment as the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I think, pretty sure. 
Uh, but, uh, but it could be the beginning. It of the could end. be. It could be. Uh, but we now have a Muslim-Israeli conflict, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think that the religious work there is more important than ever before. Mm. We need a a deep religious uh, infrastructure for peace. This is not going to be a Western peace. We're not going to to create a peace with. Uh, uh, that will be a devoid of a religious component. A it commonality a, of interests. Yes. Look, I, I, I think a commonality of interests is, is, sure. is what's primarily motivating uh, the, the Gulf states to, to seek out Israel. Protection against Iran, joint economic ventures, that's all fantastic. Sure. Notice the language that the Gulf states has used to frame the peace. Yes. They're calling it the Abraham Accords. And, and, and I don't think that's just a, uh, a, a uh, I don't think it's just public relations. I oh, think, I agree. I think it's a, it's a deep expression of, of, a, of, a, of a need to, to create a, a piece that has religious resonance, mm-hmm. religious legitimacy. A shared so, narrative too. Yes, yes. So the question here is uh, how do we proceed with a regional peace with, with the Arab world, mindful of, the, of, of probably a coming war that we have with, with Iran and Hezbollah and, and Hamas? And how do we strengthen the, the positive regional trends? And what do we do about the Palestinians? Sure. Uh, one of the, the the breakthroughs that we've had in, in the last few months is ending the Palestinian veto over our ability to make peace with Arab countries. Yes. Now, the truth is that Sadat and Begin 40 years ago ended that veto. So this is, in some sense, the belated vindication of their vision. I hear that. And, uh, and, and it is coming to fruition. The Sadat-Begin vision is coming to fruition. But the Palestinian issue isn't going away. And those on the right who think that we can permanently circumvent the Palestinian issue uh, are going to come up against a hard reality. And we have to figure out what do we do to move us in a better direction. Now, I am very afraid of a Palestinian state for all the reasons that Israelis know. I think those reasons are all legitimate. I, at the same time, I am almost viscerally horrified at the thought of giving up Judea and Samaria because I believe deeply that that, that it's ours. It, the Jewish people has a historic right to that land. The problem is that there's another people there. Mm-hmm. And so my starting point is the same as the settlers. It's not my end point. My end point is that with all of the pain and the reluctance and the fear, I nevertheless come out on the side of a two-state solution because I don't see another alternative. And uh, is a two-state solution possible? Certainly not anytime soon. <laughs> but what I do think might be possible for the first time is to begin to think seriously of a regional framework in which a two-state solution can happen. 
And I'm going to use a phrase that I've never imagined I would use before, which is Israel's Arab allies. We actually have strategic allies in the Arab world now who, with whom we can negotiate, with whom we can discuss our security issues on a Palestinian state, uh, who, who would get involved economically uh, in, in ensuring that this Palestinian state moves in a, in a productive direction. Uh, in other words, we're not, we're not in this alone anymore. Mm-hmm. Now we have, it's still premature. We don't yet know where this process is going, but something is, something's happening. And so I feel that the book that I wrote two years ago, which was really more of an intuition and a, almost a forlorn hope, mm-hmm. uh, has now uh, met its moment. And I'm getting responses. You know, the book has been translated into Arabic and put online for free downloading in Arabic. Fantastic. I'm getting responses from all over the Arab world. The book was favorably reviewed in the Saudi media. I got better reviews in Saudi Arabia than I did in the New York Times. <laughs> Don't feel bad about that. By the definition, you're Israeli, so at this point, that's a given, but it's impressive nonetheless. <laughs> Unbelievable, really. You know, I, I, I'm not kidding. My, the review yeah. in the Times was terrible. The review in the Saudi paper, Al Majala, was, was terrific. So the there's, there's a piece, again, that subtitle just keeps coming to me. It's this... Um, so like new new conversations and in, in, in narratives. And I hear um, the almost, uh, well, let's just call it the, the dissonance within you in terms of, of values, vision, uh, you know, visceral attachment, et cetera. Um, but the refusal to give into hopelessness. And, uh, and I think that that's a very important piece if people didn't catch that is that a lot of the, um, the either or crowd, us or them, one or two, etc. Um, a lot of it is is in many ways giving this even to, giving in either to hopelessness and then cruelty, or sort of like a utopian sort of oh it's going to be okay you know because Messiah will come etc. And, and and what I'm curious about is um, the work that you're doing with the Muslim Leadership Initiative. Like how how do you feel like it's concretely oriented toward creating these new conversations, a new narrative? Because I'm not personally convinced that the state is a helpful model in, in general, frankly, for political organization um, in the region. And so my feelings on one state versus two are, are less than clear. But what I do very much relate to is what you're saying is that once you have something like the Abraham Accords, which is grounded in a shared narrative, which by nature pulls us toward looking at each other in different ways as, a, you know, and we're not intrinsically opposed or, or, completely foreign, etc. I wonder if you feel that there's potential for that level of narrative work just to open up creative paths. Like what does our future together look like? For me, the issue has long been as long as one accepts the reality that no one's going anywhere, <laughs> you know, just take yeah. that off the table, right? Consciously or not, then you're just, you're, you're forced to think about things differently. Yeah. In terms of a state um, as a framework, or political organization, um, I, I I feel as strongly as I can feel about almost anything that if we don't have a state structure for the Jewish people in the Middle East, we were, we are not long. Well, and I'm so not looking to give up we, our state structure. 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we uh, we can't tamper with that. And uh, one of the reasons why I very reluctantly come to the debate formula uh, is because I think that to preserve a Jewish majority state in a democratic state in a state that will have coherence, continue to have coherence and be able to adequately defend itself. I think we're going to have to separate from the Palestinians to some extent. There is no there is no complete separation we're doing fine in many ways. Oh surely not. Uh, I mean I'm looking out the window here at uh, a Palestinian village literally right here on the next hill. So it's 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 a separation is is to some extent an illusion, but nevertheless, uh, I think we need to, to strengthen rather than undermine the state structure of, uh, of Israel. So what I what I'm hoping for in this, as you call it, a new conversation on narrative. It's a very interesting phrase because uh, narratives uh, are not new. Narratives are our story, our history. But a, a new conversation of narratives, for me, what that means is really what I tried to do in, in, in the letters book, was to, to tell our story, the story of the Jewish people, the Israeli Zionist story, to a very tough audience, oh, which is Palestinians, <laughs> the Arab world. And in 100 years of conflict, no Israeli writer ever sat down and said, you know, I'm going to try to tell my neighbors what my story is. And so that's what I tried to do. And at the same time, I invited my neighbors to write me their stories. Now, if I'm asking a Palestinian to listen to a Zionist story, I'd better be prepared to listen to a Palestinian story. Yes. And so what I decided to do in in my book, uh, in the paperback edition, uh, was to give the Palestinians the last word. And so I end the book with their responses to my narrative. Now, much of what I publish, I find very problematic. Uh, okay. I, 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 I deeply disagree with, with much, uh, if not most, of Palestinian reading of history of this conflict. But I felt the need to honor those Palestinians who had the courage and the goodwill to write back to me. Sure. And I also wanted to model in the same book, I wanted to model what a respectful disagreement uh, over irreconcilable narratives would look like. Now, that's very counterintuitive to this moment. It's countercultural. It is. You know, as you as you indicated earlier, the, the, the we're, 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 we are now at a terrifying moment in the dysfunctionality of the of American discourse. And, and, and so what I'm trying to do in this book is model what it's like to be in the middle of a life and death conflict, which we are here, and still to say, I'm going to, to passionately offer my narrative, my understanding of this conflict, but at the same time, I'm going to try to accommodate the counter narrative. And, uh, you know, I, when I wrote this book, I set out to find partners on the Palestinian side. I didn't know if I would find anyone. Sure. And thank God I found, I found people who have really become partners for me in this very complicated project of modeling respectful, passionate disagreement. This is, uh, and 
it's a very powerful model in and of itself. And I, I hope that people listening can appreciate that um, it's got a implication, certainly for what's happening in America, also on our streets right now. Thank God things haven't reached uh, the, the boiling point yet, but there are enough fractures within Amisrael that we could use this type of ability to hold a difficult conversation. Um, and the piece that I want to pull out, aside from the parallel to multivocality of like dreamers, that's what strikes me, is that that was more of an internal discourse like dreamers. And uh, here you're, you're, you're extending the sort of boundary of the conversation. Um, but what, what really strikes me and I want people not to miss um, is the power that if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you have to be willing to hear what they say, not agree with it, that's, not yes. le that's legitimize called, it. That's called, that's called the conversation. <laughs> yes, well, unfortunately, it's a, <laughs> it's a dying art. Right, I know we're, we, we've been going for a while speaking of dying art. I want to ask you, if you with your permission, you have one more brief question and we'll, and we'll wrap sure. it up because um, I want to give you a, a last word here that, um, as I mentioned before we got started, thank God the Jewish story has a very diverse audience. We're Jews and Christians, conservatives and, and progressives, religious and not. Um, but for sure, there's a good number of American Jews listening amongst everyone else. And I just want to ask, like, what sort of element of perspective would you want to give the listeners on the Six-Day War? How did it change the world in ways you want them to understand? And most importantly, what do you think it asks of them? I can say, first of all, how it changed the Jewish people sure. is that um, it gave us a mythic counterweight to the Holocaust. Mm. And, it get, and the creation of Israel in 1948, to some extent, did that. But Israel of 1948 was framed uh, pretty much uh, almost completely in secular terms. We were still too close to the Holocaust to see Israel in, in religious mythic terms. There were some Jews, of course, who did. But I think that most Jews, and I'm thinking of my father and his generation, certainly saw the Holocaust and in very practical, as saw the state of Israel in very practical terms as refuge, we're, being, we're able to defend ourselves. Now, it was all of that. But the Six-Day War added in the dimension of and I think that if Jews today are able to, to say the Hallel, are able to praise God, uh, it's because of 1950. Uh, and in terms of how it changed, and so it changed everything. Uh, we, have, we have 2 million former Soviet Jews living either in Israel or the United States because of the Six-Day War. That was the trigger that, that, that empowered their Jewish their quest for, for Jewish identity. Uh, we have an American Jewry that is self-confident, that is, is, is at once more American and more Jewish than it was 50 sure. years ago. Uh, and that as well is a result of the Six-Day War. I think maybe you're a product of that as well, whether oh. consciously or not. Oh, consciously so, you know? for no, no question. And no so, question. And so it, this, the Six-Day War changed everything mm -hmm. and also gave us the kinds of, of challenges and internal Jewish conflicts that we never imagined uh, we would be facing. Certainly the generation of the Holocaust couldn't have imagined. Uh, what do you do when you have a situation where, where some Jews actually feel we have too much power? If you would have told my father after the Shoah, you know, they're, they're, we're, we're going to have too much power. He would have thought you're out of your mind. Right. And so, so the kinds of dilemmas we face, moral dilemmas, this is also the same. In terms of, 
of the world. The Six Day War was really, I think, a, a moment when uh, religious Christians began to pay much closer attention to what's happening here. Certainly. And the relationship between Judaism and Christianity more broadly, and I'm not only speaking about evangelical, I'm speaking about Catholic Church. Yeah, sure, began, it began in the church. It, it began with the Catholic Church. It began with Vatican II yep. in 1965. But the post-Six-Day War era really brought to maturation the, the, this, this historic encounter between two estranged religious siblings. And so in so many ways, the Six-Day War changed Jewish reality and I think changed the reality of the world. And one thing you think it asks, us of, asks of us now? I'll answer very much as, as someone who has experienced moments of redemption in this generation. I'm thinking of the Soviet Jewry movement, which was a, a movement consciously invoked the language of Geulah. Uh, we saw ourselves as, as fighting for a second exodus. Right. That was the language we used. And, uh, and I think of being in Jerusalem in the summer of 67. And I'll tell you another moment. I was in, uh, I was in Berlin in 1989, right after the wall fell. Oh. I was there as a journalist. And I spent that year following the falling dominoes in Eastern Europe and seeing the Soviet empire Crumble. implode, right. implode. And I have seen the impossible repeatedly. Hmm. And so I think that what the Six Day War tells us and, uh, is that uh, we are living in a time of mythic fulfillment where anything and everything is possible. The worst is possible, is possible. We live in an era where, God forbid, nuclear war is possible. Sure. Anything is possible. But if anything is possible, redemption is also possible. Wow. So I don't think we could end on a more powerful note than that. I want to thank you for your time, your focus, and for the work that you do. If people want to get your books, know more about what you think, what's the best way that they should go about doing that? Uh, they can look up my uh, my website, yossikleinhalevi.com. Uh, Great, I'll drop that in the show notes. Great, thank you. Or, uh, or go into Amazon, and uh, it's, it's all there. It's a connected world, wonderful. Well, in addition to thanking you, I want to thank all the folks that are listening, especially the folks that give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, keep it free and widely available. I want to invite you now, if you're listening, to join them. You can go to my website, jewishstory.co. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button there that says, be a patron. Click on that for a little bit of per-podcast support. If you want to dedicate a show, be in touch with me. You can find me on Facebook, Rob Mike Foyer, or robmikefoyer at gmail.com. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network for creating a platform that allows me to reach so many wonderful people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org, for building an educational institution that gives me the privilege of teaching so many fantastic Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.